Thank you, Keith. In the summer of 2004, bulldozers in Israel uncovered a set of steps and a pool. What they uncovered turned out to be the Pool of Siloam that we just heard about in our scripture passage. 225 feet of the original northern steps of the, of the pool were exposed. Now, archaeologists believe that the total size of the pool still extends much further south and was probably about the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools put together. This pool is located in Jerusalem at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel and is called Siloam, meaning scent, because the result, it is the result of an underground tunnel that was cut or sent through solid rock. Now, two years ago yesterday, my husband Todd, Pastor Kurt, Joe, and I sat on those steps at the Pool of Siloam. And while we were there, we experienced the blind man's encounters with Jesus as our new friends acted out John 9 at the Pool of Siloam, where the man born blind received his sight. As you will hear, John 9 has been a significant part of my journey with Jesus as I've navigated life with a chronic illness. And seeing it reenacted where it actually happened, like magnified the significance of that to me. So today, we are going to explore the sixth of seven signs in the Gospel of John. Now remember, they're not called miracles, they're called signs, because they, the sign in and of itself is not the point. The point is um, what it points to. So the sign in John 9 is when Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. Now verse 1 begins, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It wouldn't have surprised Jesus that the disciples asked this question, nor would it have surprised the man born blind. Given the cultural beliefs of the times, I'm sure it wasn't the first time he had heard that it was sin that caused his blindness. It stands out to me that Jesus saw this man, like really saw him in a way that moved him to do something. Whereas the disciples engaged in a debate about what the cause of his blindness was. Michael Card says of this interaction that the discipling of the disciples was not yet complete. I would say they and we still have much to learn about our God. Jesus saw the person, and he honored the man born blind by answering the question, by discipling the disciples within his hearing. Jesus addresses the false narrative of the culture that believed sin was the cause of his infirmity. I think we can all agree that he is clear that in the circumstances, sin was not the cause of this man's blindness. Jesus sees him as a life of possibility, not punishment. But it gets a little complicated from there. Even scholars degree, disagree about the, uh, what the next part of Jesus' reply means. Some scholars think, and most translations read, that Jesus is saying God caused this man to be born blind so that this sign could happen. 
while others show how our best attempts to translate Greek to English may not give the best interpretation um, because the phrase, but this happened, as we heard in the NIV reading, isn't in the Greek. So after studying, praying, reading translation after translation, commentary after commentary, and continued conversations with Pastor Stacy and Pastor Kurt, either interpretation seems valid. <laughs> so I can't in good conscience stand here and say that it wasn't God's plan for his blindness to be for Jesus to open his eyes at this time. And yet I can't definitively say it was. What I can say is I'm okay with living in the mystery here. That because God's ways are higher than ours, it could be either. And God is still good. I think if we aren't careful, we can get caught on the wrong question here too and miss what God is trying to do. We can miss that all the signs are pointing to Jesus and what he came to do. Jesus came to do the work of his Father and to provide a way to a saving relationship with God. I believe instead of focusing on why this man was born blind, Jesus wants us to see the possibility available in our suffering. The Phillips translation captures what I believe is at the heart of this chapter, of his story. He was not born blind because of his own sin or that of his parents, returned Jesus, but to show the power of work of God at work in him. We must carry on the work of him who sent me while the daylight lasts. Night is coming when no one can work. I am the world's light as long as I'm in it. You see, God was already at work in this man's life before he even knew who Jesus was. And his um, blindness became a specific opportunity to show the power of God at work within him. For him to not only physically see, but to have his spiritual eyes open too. And Jesus continued the work of his life by giving him physical sight, opening the doors for all around him to have a chance to see Jesus too. Regardless of causation, Jesus does see the man's blindness as an opportunity for the work of God to be displayed in his life. And really, aren't we all born for the purpose of displaying God's work in our lives? Jesus chooses this man's blindness to reveal himself as the light, light that shines into the darkness, literally and metaphorically. He does this by putting um, his words into action. He spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. As I explained earlier, Siloam means sent. But let's pause a minute to consider that Jesus sent this man, while he was still blind, to a public pool to wash off the clay. He didn't tell the man to wash so he could see. He simply sent the man to wash, and the man went to a place where he would not only see, but be seen. Now, this is a different pattern for Jesus 
Up until now, he directed the recipients of his signs and miracles to tell no one but the priests and only when necessary. So why now? Why different? So scripture doesn't actually say, but most scholars believe it was so he would be seen. And the rest of John 9 tells us what others saw. It was so shocking to his neighbors and those who had seen him begging that they debated if he was even the same man. If you remember in the scripture that Keith just read, they either answered, um, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Or no, he only looks like him. Even when he himself insisted, I am the man, they just want to know how he can now see. Even when he um, answered, they remained confused. They did not know what to do with this man who could now see. They're curious about this man called Jesus and where he is, yet instead of searching for him, they do the culturally safe thing. As Kate stated, the neighbors, they don't, know, they don't know what to do with this man. And in verse 13 states, they take him to the Pharisees. They take him to their religious leaders, the equivalent of their pastors, if you will. John now informs us in verse 14, for the first time, all this happened on the Sabbath. So in the conversation that follows with the Pharisees, you know, it's stunning to me that there's seemingly no apparent compassion for the man, seemingly no rejoicing uh, or celebration with him that he was healed, really either by the Pharisees or the neighbors. Ruth Haley Barton states, no one was even the least bit curious about what it was like to be able to see for the first time ever. Instead, there's only interrogation. And once they learn the man was healed, their primary, primary concern isn't that he was healed, but rather that Jesus did this once again on the Sabbath. But notice verse 16 says they were divided. So the system they fight to preserve says that Jesus has to be a sinner if he makes mud and he puts it on the eyes of the man on the Sabbath. From, so from a Sabbath-breaking standpoint, things have progressed to the point now, in the Pharisees' mind, where making mud was akin to kneading bread, all right, which was Sabbath, viola Sabbath violation. That was prohibited. That is more important than the fact to them that, the, that this man was healed. But some of them are at least open-minded enough to ask, how can a sinner perform such signs? But in the end, collectively, their, their pre-existing cognitive filters will not allow them to accept this. So verse 18 states, they still did not believe that he had been blind and that had received his sight. So the Pharisees sinned for the man's parents. And in what appears a very, a very accusatory tone, they, say, they ask, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it he can now see? Okay, we need to understand, there's a major power differential going on here. Again, Ruth Haley Barton says, the Pharisees did not hesitate to use their power to intimidate, to exploit, to, to even exclude those who didn't toe the line wherever they decided the line would be drawn. So because of this, this couple, the parents, they're very intimidated. They're afraid, and they choose their words carefully. He is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can now see... And who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So at first it sounds like they're just saying, well, he's an adult. He's his own person. Ask him. But the gospel writer John makes it clear that the parents said this because they were afraid. 
John clarifies in verse 22 that Jewish leaders had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Okay, we need to understand the gravity of what it means to be put out of the synagogue. This isn't like being thrown out of a church in the 21st century where you can just pack up, walk down the street, find another church with relative ease. Now, the synagogue was the religious and the cultural center of the Jewish community. Getting thrown out carried with it some serious social, even economic consequences. This is going to make their lives hard if it happens. The parents, they have something to lose here, and it could affect their family, it could affect their livelihood. Now, I have to believe that at some point word had really gotten to the parents about what happened to their son uh, and who did it. So what they did here is what I'm calling pleading the messianic fifth, all right? based on the grounds that any allusion to Jesus being the Messiah doing this healing might incriminate them. So rather than stand behind their son, they seem to throw him under the bus. They quickly divert the Pharisees' focus off themselves and back onto him. See, there's, there's a lot of fear here. Enough to essentially drive them to abandon their formerly disabled adult son to the powers that be in order to protect themselves. So on a day when this man sees for the first time in his life, his parents don't stand with him. They don't stand up for him. Out of fear, they abandon him. But that's the kind of power the Pharisees wielded. So the Pharisees pull the man back in for what becomes the second interrogation. And they turn up the heat. And this is bad. But, the, you know, the justice bent in me loves the courageous response of this man under pressure. So the Pharisees lead with, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. To which I want to say, wait, objection. You're leading this witness. There's, there's really not much of a question here. Um, so see how much them trying to get this man to question his reality? It really sounds like gaslighting. There's been a lot said, there's been a lot written about gaslighting, specifically gaslighting as an interrogation tactic recently. So if you don't know, gaslighting is defined as a form of psychological manipulation. It's really emotional abuse where the abuser or the bully intentionally misleads the target, creating this false narrative for the purpose of them questioning their, their judgments, to question their reality. But the man born blind is too smart to fall into this interrogation tactic, this trap. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Boy, I love that. That's the, we love that line. It's, it's as if he's saying, you know, that stuff about who sinned and the Sabbath, that's your thing. I know my story. You can't take away my story. I was blind, but now I see. The Pharisees repeat the same question. They're looking for a different answer. You know, peppering someone with the same question and again and again until you get the answer, a different answer, it's another interrogation tactic, by the way. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? See, they're interrogating for the purpose of getting this man to give them the answer that they want to protect their status quo. But he won't do it. I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Again, he won't take the bait. Unlike his parents, he isn't intimidated. But 
he pushes them too far. You know, maybe at this point, you know, after the exhausting day he's had, maybe he can't help himself. Or maybe he just doesn't care. In one sense, you know, this is the best day of his life. He can see, so why not? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> Mushroom-shaped cloud, right? But don't miss that word too. Don't miss that word too. It seems to indicate that there's a progression going on in this man to the point where he is beginning to include himself among the other disciples of Jesus. And it seems to me that's what the Pharisees heard because they respond with insults. At, th at this point, the questioning's over and the accusations begin. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke through Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answers, well, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Wow. So who's preaching now, right? There's so much here. So much courage. One commentator wrote in a debate between the beggar and the bigots, the beggar won. All right? And I wonder, I have to wonder if his parents are still watching. I wonder if they're proud of their son. At this point, who is blind and who can see? The Pharisees don't see. They don't want to see. You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? They won't even hear it. Even, even though, frankly, it's the same argument some of the Pharisees had back in verse 16. When you look at this, do you see them contradict themselves in the changing narrative? You know, when it serves their purpose that the narrative be that he was never born blind so that they can deny Jesus' power to heal, they're willing to run in that direction, right? When a man won't bend to their interrogation tactics and frankly has a really strong theological argument in his response, well, then once again, you're steeped in sin. Remember, someone sinning was a prevailing thought for why he was born blind after all. The Pharisees must protect the status quo. Because really, just like the parents, they're afraid. They're afraid enough to pivot the narrative for their own purpose. So this middle section of John 9 is just chock full of fear. And ultimately, what the parents feared the most happened to their son. Verse 34 concludes, and they threw him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. So in many of the encounters Jesus has with people in the gospel, he heals them and he sends them on their way. Sometimes even early in his ministry, he instructs them not to tell anybody about it. He doesn't seem too often that he circles back to them. But this time he does. Perhaps this time he had to. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Hey, the Son of Man is a messianic term. Its origins are found in the Old Testament in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. So to the Jews, it refers to a future figure whose coming would mark the beginning of God's final judgment. So in the Gospel of John, he transforms that traditional usage so that Jesus is the Son of Man, whose future judgment is already underway in the present. And Jesus uses that term for himself as early, even as back in John 1, 
when he, uh, when he, after he called the disciple Nathaniel in that conversation. Jesus reveals he is the son of man. He says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So regarding the son of man, the present and the future judge standing before him and speaking to the man he healed, Jesus speaks of his right to judge. He says, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. That verse, verse 39, to me, that, that harkens back to uh, what Simeon said actually to Mary when he held the baby Jesus in the temple courts. That happened way back in Luke 2. Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. I think that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. This is a big passage. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's got a lot of characters. What does it have to say to us today? I think for one, this man had a story. And no one could take it away from him. That's true for all of us. I'm going to invite Kate back now. She's going to share more about her story as it pertains to this passage. Twenty. I was diagnosed with dermatomyositis, a very rare autoimmune disease. When it's flaring, I experience extreme muscle fatigue and weakness. At various points during my illness, generally when I was on someone's prayer chain, people sent me books to help me identify the sin in my life that was causing my illness. Or when praying with me, ask God to reveal the sin in my life that was making me sick. Others gave me prayer books offering that if I knew how to pray, God would have healed me. Yeah, these things hurt. They could have sidelined my faith, but by the grace of God, it didn't. Cause me to lean further into Jesus in prayer and to dig deeper into scripture to find out what God really had to say. My understanding of God's love for me grew, and I came to believe that I was fearfully and wonderfully made, disease and all. And Jesus' emphatic answer in John 9, that neither the man nor his parents' sin caused him to be born blind, opened up the possibility that sin wasn't the cause of my illness. I don't think they intended to be unkind. I think they fully believed their narrative and wanted to help, or maybe they needed a reason for my illness. I just don't think they saw me as more than my illness. I don't think they saw me as Jesus saw the man born blind, as Jesus sees me and Jesus sees you. A life of possibility not punishment. For me, possibility for God's work to continue is wrapped in chronic illness. It might be for you too, or it may be something entirely different. Now, I'm not suggesting we live in denial or avoid dealing with the sometimes harsh realities of life. Yes, there is evil in this world. Yes, there is sin. 
and the reality that we live in a fallen world. Yes, a healthy, transforming life of faith includes reflection, confession, and repentance. But the reality is also that we don't know what to do with suffering. And if we aren't careful, we can fall into similar false narratives like the disciples, neighbors, parents, and Pharisees in this passage today. You know, it's easier to believe that there is a cause to the effect, giving us the narrative that we can somehow avoid human misfortune by doing the right things. There's a comfort, albeit false, for the observer or the person suffering to find a reason. Unconfessed sin, bad habits, family history, family medical history, not praying right, you name it. Something implying there is a formula to a pain-free life. A right way to get God to do what we want. A right way to avoid suffering. It's also easier to believe God couldn't have possibly made this man blind for such a time as this than to sit in the tension of how the goodness of God can coexist within a person's pain or a suffering world. The better questions seem to be, what is God doing in the midst of our reality? What is God going to do? God's goodness is not compromised by our circumstances. God's power and presence can be revealed in any circumstance. I believe this is what we see in our scripture today. You know, John 9 usually gets titled the healing of the blind man, but that is just the sign. What does this sign point to? True seeing is believing who Jesus is. In other words, believing is seeing. John 9 is about the spiritual sight of everyone who comes into contact with Jesus through this sign. The point of this story isn't that Jesus gave the man born blind physical sight. The point is that Jesus saw the man while he was blind and found him when he was all alone because he had grown to see spiritually. This is the work Jesus is continuing in him and in us, giving eyes to see spiritually, providing a path to deepening faith, a path to transformation, to belief. Jesus opened his eyes whether he could ever physically see or not. Now, many stories in the Gospels include examples of personal transformation. Transformation is what the Gospel is all about, and it continues whenever Jesus touches a life with his mercy, compassion, and grace. Genuine transformation has been defined as a dramatic and profound reforming of our entire being. So in the longest healing narrative in all of the Gospels, we have had a front row seat to the transformation as Jesus opens both the physical and spiritual eyes of the man born blind. This man, as Kurt said, probably had the best day of his life, even with all the challenges. This man was completely blind, both physically and spiritually, at the beginning of his day. That was his reality. He began his encounter only knowing Jesus as a man others called Jesus. Yet Jesus saw him and continued God's work in him. Throughout the day and throughout others' questioning, he followed a progression to faith. Jesus found him again, 
revealed his identity, and the once blind man called Jesus Lord and worshipped him. Now, Pastor Kurt shared last month the recurring pattern our friends at the Bible Project identify regarding signs and proclamations by Jesus. First, Jesus completes a sign or makes a claim about himself. This results in a misunderstanding or controversy. And lastly, people are then forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. This is exactly what we have seen in our text today and the invitation this passage offers to us. Ruth Haley Barton states that John 9 can be a disturbing passage for those of us who have been in the church for a long time. If we take a hard look, we may see ourselves in some of the characters and we may recognize that we don't see as well as we might have thought. So where do you find yourself in the passage today? I think we can all identify with some step in the man's journey. Are you in a place of wanting healing, not sure anyone sees you, but hoping someone will? Are you at a place in your faith journey where Jesus is only a man who others call Jesus? Do you see him as a prophet, a good man, but not yet more? Or has Jesus revealed himself as the light of the world and the son of man to you? Are you at a place of belief and worship? Or perhaps you are also realizing you don't see as well as you thought and you identify more with the disciples asking the wrong questions, the neighbors stuck in old paradigms, the parents afraid of the ramifications, or the Pharisees preserving the system at all costs. I think the deepest question before us today is, how do we, how do you respond to Jesus' question in verse 35? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Is he opening your eyes and heart to a deeper belief in him? Or are your eyes and heart opening to him for the first time? If you are here this morning and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you would like to, I invite you to speak to me or to Pastor Kurt after the service or reach out to us through the communication card. At some point in our lives, we have been in many of these places, maybe more than once or more than one at a time. I know I have been. But thankfully, Jesus keeps seeing us, inviting us to stay on the journey, inviting us to believe in him so we might truly see. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for your word. We ask you to continue to open our eyes and our hearts so we might see you, that we might truly believe. Amen. Amen.